Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, New Yorkers who were here 22 years ago remember the proliferation of signs and stickers reading, Our Grief is Not a Cry for War, and then the way that voice was shouted over by corporate news media, calling for war crimes with U.S. flags on their lapels. Pretend neutral news media have done crucial work in selling Islamophobia and weaponizing centuries of misinformation and demonization for wartime purposes, with the war being the undefined, unending war on terror. Media's job has involved lying to us about many things, but crucially about what we believed, what we were capable of, and what we wanted to see as the way forward. Key to that campaign has been the idea that Muslims are the enemy, violent, dangerous, irrational. If not now, soon. If not your friend, his friend. September 11, 2001 is the exemplar of a past that isn't dead or even past, and for no one more especially than Muslims. We'll talk about that with Maha Halal, author of the book, Innocent Until Proven Muslim, Islamophobia, the War on Terror, and the Muslim Experience Since 9-11. That's coming up, but first we'll take a very quick look back at some recent press. The Washington Post's David Ignatius wrote a column headlined, The West Feels Gloomy About Ukraine. Here's Why It Shouldn't. Turning those frowns upside down, Ignatius assured readers that, quote, For the United States and its NATO allies, these 18 months of war have been a strategic windfall at relatively low cost, other than for the Ukrainians, close quote. And yes, that was a literal parenthetical. The fact that Ukraine has lost 70,000 combatants to the war by U.S. estimates, along with more than 40,000 civilians. An estimated 120,000 Russian fighters have been killed, more than all U.S. war deaths for the past 75 years, but Ignatius doesn't consider the losses of Russia even worth alluding to. He ticked off what he saw as the upsides of the war. Quote, the West's most reckless antagonist has been rocked. NATO has grown much stronger with the additions of Sweden and Finland. Germany has weaned itself from dependence on Russian energy and in many ways rediscovered its sense of values. Close quote. That last phrase is Ignatius' way of describing Germany abandoning its reluctance to use force that it adopted in the wake of World War II. But, death and destruction aside, Ignatius concludes, quote, this has been a triumphal summer for the alliance, close quote. Other headlines were dire. Looming auto workers' strike could cost $5 billion in just 10 days, new analysis says said CNBC, while Forbes moaned, auto workers' walkout could cost $5 billion in losses to economy, study predicts. Well, what those and other stories didn't tell you, but Sarah Lazar did in the American Prospect, is that the Anderson Economic Group, 
the experts making this prediction, are a consulting firm whose clients include GM and Ford, two of the big three automakers that workers would be striking against. And finally, the Washington Post's editorial, How Biden Can Court Vietnam and Help Those Stuck Behind Bars, encouraged the U.S. president to lecture Vietnam on its penal system. The Washington Post didn't mention what Vietnam should say to the U.S. about its incarceration rate, four times that of Vietnam and the highest in the world. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Islamophobia existed before September 11th, 2001, but the response to that day's attacks leveraged the power of the state in service to that discrimination in ways that continue to shape foreign and domestic policy and everyday life. And all along the way, corporate news media have not just platformed but megaphoned the idea that Muslims— because they are Muslim, are dangerous and suspicious, that their humanity is at best contingent, that media's looks back on the day overwhelmingly failed to even acknowledge the so-called war on terror's ongoing impacts on Muslims is just testament to the mainstreaming of this particular brand of scapegoating. Maha Halal is the founding executive director of the Muslim Counter Publics Lab and author of the book Innocent Until Proven Muslim, Islamophobia, the War on Terror, and the Muslim Experience Since 9-11 from Broadleaf Books. She joins us now by phone from Arlington, Virginia. Welcome back to Counterspin, Maha Halal. Thank you so much, Janine, for the invitation. Well, when we think about the wreckage from the attacks of September 11th, 2001, not just the attacks themselves, but the actions in the wake of them, for a lot of people, our minds go to the wars on Afghanistan and on Iraq with validity, right? You know, but it's important for Americans not to see the war on terror only as something that the U.S. state is inflicting on others elsewhere, particularly as the domestic facets, while maybe not front-page news, are still very much in effect, right? It's not somewhere else, and it's not in the past. Absolutely. So there's been this notion, as you are describing, that the war on terror was just something that happened abroad. And in fact, when we look at the trajectory of the war on terror, immediately after the 9-11 attacks, Muslims and Arabs were targeted, were racially profiled, and were being scrutinized and surveilled domestically within the United States. And it's always been interesting to think about how the war on terror has been constructed so narrowly so that Americans think it's abroad. And there was a summer in which there was a lot of discourse around the 1033 program and bringing the ways that the military was giving equipment to police officers around the country. And and the narrative there was that now the war on terror is coming home. Mm-hmm. Whereas, as I write about in my book, the war on terror started at home 
and the war on terror has been home, right? And and this speaks a lot to who do we understand as being American? Who do we understand as being within the borders of this country? And who do we care about when it comes to state violence? And we know that it's obviously not just Muslims who are treated with little to no regard, but also other BIPOC communities. So it does raise this question of who do we actually care about? And so I think it's important, as I outline in the book, to really look at the taxonomy of the war on terror. What is the war on terror in its totality? And it's only by answering that question that I think we can ask the other question, which is what do we need to do to abolish the war on terror? Well, and you talk about the various aspects of it. It's so in the ether that we almost don't think about it. But things like registration, things like detaining people, there are multiple questions around immigration, so-called. There are multiple elements that reflect the domestic manifestation of the war on terror. Absolutely. And, you know, I just wrote an op-ed in the Daily Beast about the terrorism watch list, which turns 20 this week. And, you know, that has been a very systemic, systematic, pervasive policy that has impacted not just Muslims, but also Muslim Americans. And this is a policy that has been in place to scrutinize and surveil Muslims, many of whom, you know, face extremely harsh interrogations at airports when they're flying and when they're traveling. And for a lot of others, it's this process that needs to be done. You know, Muslims are the enemy, so it's it's okay, it's normal to see them being singled out in places like airports because that's the sort of places of violence that we associate Muslims with. But Suffice it to say, right, there are so many ways that the war on terror, I think on this point, it's important to mention, has been so normalized. So not only is there a lack of knowledge and understanding that it has a very domestic front, but also we're so accustomed, you know, I think we've we've just sort of accepted everything that the war on terror has entailed to the point where There are so many tentacles of the war on terror that we no longer see. And that's why, again, we think about the narrative around that 1033 program and the idea that, you know, again, the war on terror was coming home as opposed to the war on terror has always been home. That's one of the problems that we come across when people aren't informed about what's happening domestically to people, you know, in their communities, in their societies, in their neighborhoods. I think some people might actually be surprised to hear that what we used to call the no-fly list, that that's still a thing, that that is an enduring impact. You may have read about it 20 years ago and thought that it disappeared, but in fact, it's still affecting people's lives around this country and around the world. Absolutely. And I think with things like the no-fly list, people can sort of brush it off as minor inconveniences, right? Mm. That it's just additional scrutiny and eventually the person is able to travel as opposed to recognizing, you know, the complete humiliation that is repeated over and over again and the symbolic message that it sends to Americans and to people traveling, right, that Muslims continue to be the enemy and that when it comes to Muslims traveling and Muslims in general, there's always this propensity of violence because Muslims are inherently violent. And so these policies reiterate that over and over again. Well, you talk a bit about the power of language in the book, the work that language has done. I always thought that when news media took 
war on terror out of quotation marks that something really changed, you know, once they started saying that this was an unironic term. Because, of course, once we're at war, well, media have a lot of imagery around that that takes over, you know. But war on terror itself is at the same time deeply evocative and also a total thought stopper right. of a term. It ju- it just justifies endlessly, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And the first time that Bush used the phrase war on terror was in his speech nine days after the 9-11 attack. And so the context in which he was using it was to actually say that essentially we're going to wage an endless war. There's no timelines. There's no boundaries. We're basically going to do whatever we want. And in fact, he said that Americans should expect a lengthy battle. And that's what happens when you use nebulous phrases like war on terror, that it opens the door for basically the U.S. government to do whatever it wants, because, you know, the phrase is unclear as it is, but also you can always fit things into what does terror look like? Mm -hmm. And this is our war on terror. This is how we have to seek out revenge. This is how we have to intervene into what the ways that we were victimized. And media's acceptance, journalists' acceptance of that term, I really thought, you know, all bets are off at this point. And a thing that I thought that media never acknowledged, I remember Ari Fleischer, the White House press secretary, telling Howard Kurtz, who was then at the Washington Post, talking about the war on terror, quote, this is the most information-intensive war you can imagine. We're going to lie about things, close quote. Mm. And I always thought a self-respecting press corps, that would have set them on just a categorically different course. And I wonder, can you talk about the role of media here, um, which, of course, is so important in in propagating this idea and sustaining this idea of Muslims as the enemy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think media in the war on terror has often just basically operated as the mouthpiece for government. Not only have they reported very uncritically about what the government is doing, they've repeated you know, a lot of the terminology and the phraseology and accepted, for example, what does terrorism mean, right? Uh, in the ways that the U.S. government chooses to define it. Or the idea, for example, that I write about in the book as well, that state violence is inherently more moral than non-state actor violence. And, you know, this is not to say that any violence should be condoned, but it is to say that there should be a critical lens in terms of what kind of violence is actually more destructive. But the government is able to continue to assert its violence is morally superior in part because of the ways that the media operates. And another specific problem with the media, I think, is in the last two decades plus, whenever there is, for example, an attack or, you know, an act of violence by someone who's not Muslim, the ways that it's described is often in in terms like non-jihadist violence or non-Islamic extremism. And that is to say that Muslim violence is essentially the gold standard. Mm -hmm that we cannot conceive of violence as organic and rooted in this country, that it has to be in comparison to Muslim violence. And that has been a particular construction that has been repeated over and over again. And obviously, the point of that is to entrench the idea that Muslims are inherently terroristic and violent. Well, some of us may remember folks like Steve Emerson, who right after the 1995 Oklahoma City 
bombing, said, quote, this was done with the attempt to inflict as many casualties as possible. That is a Middle Eastern trait, close quote. Now, of course, we know who was behind the Oklahoma City bombing. The point is Steve Emerson continued to appear as a terrorism expert on news media for years afterwards. So it's just to exactly what you were saying. You you never lose in U.S. news media and corporate news media by linking violence and Islam, even if you're wrong, even if you're incredibly wrong. Somehow it's never points off. Yeah, and Steve Emerson, you know, belongs in the category of what, you know, we would refer to as a moral entrepreneur. And, you know, these are people that sort of operate the space between media and government. And their specific role is to present a particular problem, a social issue or political problem, and attach it to one particular group. That is to say that that problem can be attributed to that group. And so they continue to forge those connections and repeat it over and over again. And, you know, he's one of many, right? There's, there's been Daniel Pipes, many others. And, you know, I don't know if you've come across this term, but, you know, Daniel Pipes came up with this idea of sudden jihad syndrome, which is basically about, like, Muslims randomly erupting into violence. And that is obviously the trope that has been entrenched over and over again, that we're inherently violent. So it's not a matter of if they're going to commit violence. It's a matter of when, Mm -hmm. because they're inherently predisposed to committing acts of violence. And the point that you're making and that we're underscoring is that this isn't just a cultural bias. This isn't just Steve Emerson showing up on TV. U.S. policy is shot through with this bias. U.S. policy is reflecting this bias in terms of actions, in terms of policies and behaviors and the way people are treated. It's not just a wackadoo prejudice that's sort of floating around. It's actually institutionalized. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the ways that the U.S. government tries to be evasive about this is, you know, a lot of the the laws and policies and, and, you know, bills that are passed, right? The language in them is neutral. You know, it doesn't specify, you know, you must target Muslims or, you know, Muslims are the target of this specific policy. But when it comes to implementation, that's when you can begin to understand exactly who the policy was intended to target. And when you continue targeting a particular group, you're also entrenching again a particular construction and you're positioning them as the problem. And, you know, I think that in the war on terror, what has been extremely frustrating, even in left and liberal spaces, is this idea that the targeting of Muslims was either unintentional or coincidental, Mm -hmm. as opposed to being extremely intentional, well thought out. And you have to know that in order to inflict the amount of violence that the United States has inflicted on Muslim communities domestically, and across the globe, there has to be such a deep level of dehumanization in place. And for that to happen, there has to be a robust narrative infrastructure. And that's exactly what was developed in the aftermath of 9-11, as well as built on by successive administrations after Bush. Well, and let me just pick you up on that point, because if we think of this as a George W. Bush policy we're we're missing it because it's Obama and it's Trump and it's 
Biden, too. You want to talk about that? Yeah. I mean, the war on terror is, is bipartisan. And I think, you know, that tends to get ignored. I know under Obama, you know, he sort of backed away from the use of the, the phrase war on terror. Mm-hmm. But he didn't change anything about what was happening, the violence that was being unleashed under the guise of the war on terror. So it's basically just a semantic change. And, you know, I, I just want to offer this is that I use the term war on terror specifically. Obviously, you can think about it in multiple ways as to whether or not that's helpful. But to me, when you take away that term war on terror, especially two decades later, then it becomes harder to map out what this war has entailed and the violence that has been waged under its scope. And if you do that, then what you see is sort of disparate policies that are disconnected, when in reality, right, they're part of a robust infrastructure. Now, when we think about Biden, right, Biden is also continuing the war on terror. I mean, there is no president thus far, right, who's been willing to challenge the status quo on the war on terror and national security in particular. And we know Democrats always fear being seen as too liberal on national security and counterterrorism. And so what often happens is that there's overcompensation as opposed to withdrawing from these problematic policies. Well, your recent piece for Tom Dispatch focused on drone warfare in particular and um, the particular role that that is playing in targeting Muslims. There's little evidence, you say, that anybody is really thinking seriously about the failures of drone warfare at all. Uh, what is key for you in that issue as a particular element of what we're talking about? It's the ease through which this form of violence is committed. And, you know, when I started writing this particular piece, I was focusing mostly on the Biden administration's policies governing drone warfare. And then I started looking into the psychology of what it takes to enable people to kill so mercilessly. So basically you have the policies, you have the rules governing drone warfare, and then you have the psychology of what makes it so easy. Mm -hmm. And when you put those two things together, it becomes exponentially more catastrophic. And, you know, a lot of times the U.S. government has said the war on terror is over, right? And I always ask the question, over for whom? Mm -hmm. Because the war on terror is not over for the countries that the U.S. continues to drone strike. We know that, right? And in the piece, I refer to a quote by a young Pakistani who said at a congressional hearing in 2013, I no longer love blue skies. In fact, I now prefer gray skies. The drones do not fly when the skies are gray. And to me, that is a particular form of violence when a young child looks up at the sky and associates its color with the probability of state violence. And until that is no longer the case, then the war on terror is not over. For Americans whose lives have pretty much resumed normalcy, right, since 9-11, they might think the war on terror is over, but it's not. And I think when we talk about Muslims and people that are being targeted, right, by the war on terror and by U.S. state violence in general, as collateral damage 
or other ways that dehumanize them, then they become inconsequential. It doesn't even really matter. Whenever there's American deaths, there's a specific number, right? It's, you know, 13 service members died, for example. When it's Muslim deaths, it's like, oh, well, there's a lot of Muslim deaths. Like, we don't really know how many. Like, we couldn't even bother to count because it doesn't really matter anyway. What finally has been the response to the book so far? And what would you like folks to use the book to do? What are you hoping for? The response to the book has been, you know, pretty positive. Mm -hmm. You know, minus some Islamophobic backlash here and there. But I think it's been pretty positive, um, especially because I tried to take such a broad approach and also to really look at not just the way that external factors have impacted the Muslim community in the form of state violence, but also the Muslim community itself has played a part in its own demonization because of internalized Islamophobia. What I really want to impart in this book and what I hope that readers really get out of it is the understanding that in order to dismantle and abolish the war on terror, we have to include a lens of Islamophobia. Islamophobia has to be mainstreamed into the analysis because unless we understand the targeting of Muslims as integral to the war on terror, then it can't truly be abolished. And throughout the book, obviously I repeat and illustrate examine, criticize, right, the ways in which the targeting of Muslims has been intentional, leaving the reader, hopefully, with no doubt that that has always been the case. It has always been the intention of the war on terror, and that the U.S. government continues to inflict violence, harm, destruction, humiliation on the Muslim community with no end in sight. We've been speaking with Maha Halal. The book is Innocent Until Proven Muslim, Islamophobia, the War on Terror, and the Muslim Experience Since 9-11, out from Broadleaf Books. You can find her recent piece, Ordinary U.S. Muslims Still Victimized by War on Terror, at the Daily Beast, and 22 Years of Drone Warfare and No End in Sight at TomDispatch.com. Thank you so much, Maha Halal, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much, Janine. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.